I'd like to speak this evening about the foundations of happiness and peace. The interest in happiness and peace, I think it's something rather universal to us as human beings, something that we're deeply interested in. And yet the question of how to attain this is something that is not necessarily so easily discovered or answered. It seems that uh, as much as we may wish or desire for peace, for happiness, it's not always what we actually discover ourselves experiencing. It's not somehow the inevitable result of being born, being alive, is that therefore we will be happy, therefore we will be at peace. It would be nice if this is the case, but often that's not actually what happens. And it's important to understand that this is not somehow our fault. It's not that we somehow um, were bad or wrong because of this, but simply because we have not necessarily understood what actually brings about, what are the conditions for happiness, what are the conditions for support, the foundation for being at peace in our lives. And what we're really engaged in here is the process of discovering that for ourselves. What is it that leads to happiness? What is it that supports a condition in which we are at peace? And what is it that leads away from us? In our seeking for happiness and seeking the end of suffering, of sorrow, of conflict, we might be interested to hear the the methods, the teaching of the Buddha. He said on a number of occasions, I teach one thing and one thing only. He said suffering or unsatisfactoriness and the ending of that. Now, hearing this, you might uh, reflect as a, a friend and meditator in America once did and he, he commented, well that sounds interesting. The Buddha says I teach just one thing but that sounds like two things suffering and the end of suffering. And he went on to uh, reflect that perhaps the Buddha had started off just teaching about suffering but found out it wasn't that popular. So uh, he expanded the teaching to include the end of suffering as well. And that probably strikes a chord with us. Because sometimes we come on retreat thinking well, actually what we're interested in one thing only. What we're interested in is the end of suffering. But when we come on retreat what actually happens is not that. What happens is the experience of suffering or unsatisfactoriness or some sense of struggle with what's going on. And Dharma teachings, the teachings of the Buddha, known as Dharma teachings, the way things are, point to the fact that both of these dimensions are experienced and experienceable by us. We can and do experience suffering, unsatisfactoriness, struggle, conflict, and we have also the capacity and the potential to discover, to realize and to experience for ourselves the ending of all that. The release from suffering of our own hearts and our own lives. The Buddha once said, this path is a path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness. And the highest happiness is peace. And our, our natural response to that, our natural interest, I think, in, in, in a path that leads to peace, that leads to happiness, is something that we, we wish, that we yearn for, that we aspire to, essentially because we care for our own lives, we care for ourselves. We actually deeply wish for our own happiness. And this is natural and appropriate. And yet, how do we bring it about? This is really the important question. The important question of our lives. Because sometimes it can seem like we can't just, well it's obvious, we can't just make it happen as an act of willpower. We can't just decide, okay, I'm going to be happy and peaceful from here on in. And just be happy and peaceful. Well, if you can, that's great. But, um, you know, there's a lot of others of us who'd be interested to hear how you just decided that and how it worked. For most people it's not like that. 
And so to understand, we can't make it happen, and yet we aren't not powerless or without some capacity to undertake this journey of discovery. We can't just do it, but nor is it something outside of our life or our influence. And this is really where Dharma teachings meet us. They say, or they invite us to explore and see what is it that actually serves your life? What is it that makes a difference? And one of the fundamental understandings that is certainly not limited just to uh, Dharma teachings, the Buddhist tradition, but is uh, very much a foundation of it, is the understanding that it is our actions that most profoundly affect how we experience our life. The quality of our life is primarily conditioned and configured by our actions. And not by the external appearance or what our actions look like, but actually more precisely where our actions come from in our heart. The first foundation of happiness and peace is actually the foundation which we already referred to yesterday evening of non-harming, of well-wishing, of taking care for the life and well-being of others as well as ourselves. And understanding how this works is, is important to see that how we experience our hearts and our minds is not separate from our actions and is most fundamentally determined by the the basic intentions we choose to emphasize. To the degree that we act from selfish greed, from anger and hatred, and from self-centeredness, we actually experience suffering in our lives. We experience disconnection, and we experience a sense of longing, I think, for something which appears to be absent or missing. To the extent that we actually act from a place of generosity, of caring and kindness for others, of non-self-centeredness, to the extent that that is the prime motivating element in our actions, to this extent, happiness finds us. Peace and well-being becomes our place of abiding. And it's really that the fruit of our life are born of the seeds of our actions acting out of a place of essential goodness and wholesomeness of caring and well-wishing for life for ourselves and others is the foundation of a, of a happy life acting in disregard of the welfare of others or ourselves is the basis for suffering and in the teachings it's uh, referred to the, the process it's like if you plant the seed of a sweet fruit. If you plant a seed, an action based on goodness, it bears sweet fruit. If you plant a seed of a mango, the tree will produce mango. That's just how it is. If you plant the seed of a bitter fruit, it will produce a tree that grows bitter fruit. That's just the nature of it. And in our practice, what we have opportunity to do is to notice actually the seeds that we're planting because they are in fact the garden of our life. Much of what we experience is the seeds that we have already planted. We notice at times feelings, thoughts, conditions felt in heart and body and mind that are born of past actions, times of anger, of fear, of hatred, of greediness or self-centeredness, selfishness. If we find ourselves encountering memories, feelings associated with them, we actually find them painful, difficult, unpleasant. And it actually speaks to us quite directly of the effect of those ways of living. And if we find ourselves remembering times of kindness, of sharing, of selflessness, of, of caring, and looking after the welfare of others and ourselves, they actually bring us uplift, they make us feel good, we actually feel happy. In those moments we don't mind that we were thinking so much when we realise it. And it actually again, it speaks to us directly of the, the well-being of heart that comes 
when we align our actions with an intention of goodness, of well-being, of generosity and kindness. But what we also discover as we sit down and meditate, as we practice, is that most of the time what's going on in our minds we're not even really in touch with or conscious of. Many of the most critical choices of our life are made unconsciously because we react to experiences without actually knowing that we're doing it. We react without really being able to choose which pathways we walk. And so then we experience our life as somehow being bombarded by by difficulty, by challenge, by struggle, that somehow seems to be done to us. So we seem to be the victim of, or subject to, in a way in which we can't free ourselves from. We can feel bound in that way. And mainly it's because we've either failed to understand that the root intentions and motivations that we act from actually are the basis of happiness and well-being. Or, having understood that or begun to understand that we've not yet understood how to actually make a wholesome motivation or wholesome motivation is the basis of our life. So it's not about good and bad and I think important to emphasize this because in our kind of Judeo-Christian ethical or moral sort of upbringing we often have a sense of good and bad, of evil and its opposite or its absence as being what action is all about. But in in Dharma teaching it's not really about that, it's about simply seeing that there are consequences and making our choices. If we wish to experience pain and suffering then it's really easy to produce the experience. If we wish to find peace and happiness then there are choices we need to make that align ourselves with that possibility, that potential for our heart. And so that really brings us to the place of meditation, of what we're doing here. When I first started practicing, I was traveling in Asia, and uh, friends at home and family would sometimes ask, what was I doing? Because when I first came across these practices and teachings, I pretty much gave up everything else and threw myself quite wholeheartedly into, into meditation. And people ask, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I, I tried to think, how can I explain this? How can I express to people what this is all about in a way that will be meaningful? And actually what I came up with in the end is I said, look, this is happiness training. It's basically what it is. It's actually training ourselves in the art of happiness. Cultivating the capacities of our being that actually underpin, that form a foundation for peace and well-being. And so, meditation. We start off in meditation simply by trying to gather ourselves consciously to be connected with where we are. We can live our life so fragmented, so scattered, so dissipated in so many different demands, pressures, conflicting desires or fears that seem to occupy us, that seem to demand our attention to the extent that we we feel scattered and shredded even, we might say. That we arrive on a retreat and it feels like there's no cohesion, there's no sort of coherence in our being. We're simultaneously drawn in so many directions at once and we can't really land anywhere. There's a way in which that fragmentation is both profoundly painful in itself And it also means we don't really see what's going on. We can't really comprehend what's occurring. And again, we can feel very much a victim of the process because of that. But through the exercise of a clear intention and a gentle discipline, we can actually begin to reverse that condition of mind, that habit of our life. By bringing our attention to the breath, bringing our attention to the foot as we take a step, coming back again and again. It's like we gather the the vast but scattered energies of our being. We allow them to gather where we are in the present moment. As though we're filling a like a stone bowl with water, drop by drop. Every time we come back, it's like we gather ourselves a little more. It doesn't matter how many times your attention wanders, how often that occurs. 
just coming back again and again. It's like the potency of our life is dissipated in too many directions. But if we keep coming back to our life, which is right now, which isn't somewhere else, which isn't in the past, that we might be dwelling upon with regret or with fondness, it's not in the future that we might be excited about or afraid of. It's not in those places. It's here. It's now. It's never been anywhere else. Coming back to this, coming back to our life, we actually start to cultivate or to experience a degree of harmony in heart and mind and body simply through being present it may not be what we experience most of the time initially it can seem like a fantasy that uh, me come be present be harmonized feel connected highly unlikely given what's happening in my mind and my body it's all over the place it seems and yet if we do this we'll find that we do actually begin to arrive and the moments in which we find ourselves arrived feel ourselves connected and present start to increase. And really it only takes one of those moments to show us that there is something that's quite possible that's not so far away when we actually incline and direct the mind and heart to abide where we are. And yet of course this is a challenging process. It's not easy. We can't after years and perhaps lifetimes of allowing our mind to wander around as much as it does, totally unfettered, undirected, untrained. We can't just say, okay, I'm going to be present and have it happen. It would be nice if it did, but often that's not what we experience. The mind goes in so many different directions. It's so busy, it's so aggravated or stimulated or excited, at times it's bored or depressed or frustrated or excited. Or actually we just don't know what the heck was going on, it was just gone, it was too quick, I didn't see it. And all we realise is that at some point later on in the day, hopefully in the same sitting, but maybe later on, beyond that, we we realise, gosh, I've been gone. Not to despair, not to be afraid or concerned about that, but simply just begin again and again. It's like we're drawn into things without realising it. But the more we actually stop and see this process going on, the more we're able to actually not be drawn. It takes time, it takes patience. And in that we need to be willing to actually just face that process that is uncomfortable, that is challenging. To actually recognise that while it's really hard to be present, and it is hard to come back, to connect, to reconnect again and again. I mean, it could be so tiring at the end of 45 minutes, sitting only 45 minutes, not that long, and I hear this, oh, the relief, you know. Oh, finally I can unfold my legs, or finally I can stop having to sort of chase my breath, or whatever. And the, the, the relief is palpable. You know, just a few minutes before that 45 minutes, I start opening up, and you can almost hear the mind going, must be 45 minutes, surely. You know, isn't the bell going to ring now? Has he fallen asleep at the front there? You know, and that, that, we so much want that relief. And then the bell rings and it's kind of like, ah, ah, it's okay. Actually, things are just the same as they were two moments ago. Nothing's any better. Just somehow we've actually relaxed. We've stopped struggling. We've stopped fighting with our mind. And there's something to learn in that, actually. That same quality of relief, of allowing, could quite beneficially be applied before the bell rings to just allow ourselves to be there. It's like learning to walk a straight line. (coughs) When we first learned to walk we probably wobbled all over the place. We fell down often, we got up regularly. Sometimes we gave up and just stayed on our butt for a while and decided, well, crawling wasn't that bad. But as we learned to walk as little beings, one, two years old, we realise that actually it's useful to be able to walk in a straight line. And so too, if we see our mind, that it just kind of seems to wander here and there, to actually train ourselves to come back to where we are, to live in the present moment, is actually to do ourselves a great service, to serve our mind's well-being and our own heart as well. Because 
until we do so, we're really at the mercy of everything that goes on around us. Every sound, every thought, every feeling, every memory, every sensation in our body, and somehow our mind is, is grabbed almost, and dragged away, kicking and screaming sometimes, other times quite willingly. And it's really, it's really obvious when we sit here that that's what's going on, even though much of our life we might have managed to avoid noticing it. And it's also kind of obvious how unsatisfactory it is to live in that condition. So just to notice how it happens. It's not somehow that you are the only person whose mind is like this. Sometimes that's what we think, you know, we're sitting there and we're just struggling with the drowsiness or the restlessness or the, the wondering what on earth am I doing here, what is the point of this, you know? Why am I paying attention to my breath? And we look around, you know, we open our eyes, we just kind of give it up, we look around, everyone else is sitting there so calm, so quiet, so serene. Now obviously everyone else is really going somewhere with their meditation, you know. Probably enlightenment is going to be breaking out spontaneously all around us. But we, you know, this is just hopeless. We might as well give up and go home. But often that kind of thought occurs, you know, people report in interviews. Of course, sitting up the front, we get to watch this sometimes. Sometimes we open our eyes too. And you see someone opens their eyes, looks around. Eventually the person probably just gives up and collapses. Thinks, oh well, you know, what else? I'll just have to hang out, wait for the bell. Then someone else opens their eyes and looks around. It's pretty much the same line of thought. You know, everyone else seems to be going somewhere. And it's just me struggling. But actually most of us go through this process. It's the nature of what goes on in our minds. And yet we also go through a process in which we begin to see what's happening. We begin to understand what's happening slowly. But it's really important that we do. It's like being here in the silence. Not being able to talk to anyone. Initially that can seem really uncomfortable. It seems really strange, you know. Why would human beings want to do this? Why should I have to do this? And yet we might notice that there's an unease in it for us. And what is that about? Are we interested? Like, you know, if you want to make friends with someone, what do you do? Go and spend time with them. That's the best way, generally. You can read a book about them. You could um, ask someone else about them, but it's not really going to do it. You have to spend time with them. So what would it be to spend time with ourselves? To actually make friends with ourselves? Sometimes what we notice when we actually are left alone is that actually our relationship to ourselves isn't that friendly. Isn't that at ease. You know, we thought it was awkward having to get on with other people, having to find the right thing to say to them, you know, wonder if they like me or not. When we're here we sometimes realise, oh, she's not so easy to get on with ourselves. We start to wonder if we like ourselves. What are we going to talk to ourselves about, or we find out what we're talking to ourselves about all the time and realize we don't really like the conversation. All that can go on. And rather than seeing that as, oh, it's difficult, I don't like it, I wish it didn't happen, it's like, could we be interested in that process? What could we bring to it? What could we bring to ourselves in being here? Because what we notice is that it's really easy to look around and see that if things were just a little bit different, I'd be happy. You know, if my body wasn't so uncomfortable, then I'd be able to meditate. My, my leg didn't hurt, or my knee, or my back. Or if my mind wasn't so restless, it wasn't always thinking about all those things I have to do that I should have done before I came, that I'm going to have to do when I go home, and all that. Or if the people in my room didn't make so much noise at night and I wouldn't, would have been able to sleep better and I wouldn't be so drowsy now. If I wasn't drowsy now then I'd really be going somewhere with my meditation. So much of the time we're busy looking at what the problem is. We're busy wondering how we can make it better than it is. And it's like we have this idea that there's going to be sometime soon, possibly and hopefully just around the corner, perfect conditions for me. It's going to be just the way I want it. We hope for that. We invest a lot in that. And it's like there's this process that goes on of seeking for satisfaction, seeking for happiness through the experiences that are going on around us and within us. 
And yet, all the things we experience, all the occurrences within us and around us, are in a process of change. They happen without necessarily being invited by us, not in our control. Notice what the temperature has done today. It's sunny at times, pleasant, rainy, wet, we wonder what's going to happen if it rains all day. Gets cold, we feel a bit cold, we need to put on something to stay warm. And you notice your mind wondering, what if it gets colder? What if the heating doesn't come on? I hope it'll be warm, and start thinking about, have I got enough blankets tonight? All sorts of things we can get involved with, concerned about. And it's part of this ongoing process of, how will I get it to be the way I want it? How can I make it perfect? But, you know, if we were able to make it perfect for ourselves, we'd have done it by now. If it was possible to get it so that we were constantly comfortable and easeful and there was no challenges or difficulties, if we could arrange things like that, we'd have done it, surely, wouldn't we? Because it would make sense. If I could have done it, I surely would have. But that's not what it is like to be alone. Sometimes it's great, enjoyable, fun. Sometimes it's challenging and hard. And yet that reality is so hard to acknowledge, so hard to just let it in. Life is the way it is. And yet we keep kind of looking for life to be different than it is, to make us happy. And it can't do that. Life can't be different than it is. But there's something remarkably persistent in the mind believe that if I just keep trying I'll get it I'll get there, it'll happen it'll happen to me, finally it's a little bit like the story of Mullah Nasruddin who's a, uh, a teaching figure from the Sufi tradition, he's both a, a wise man and a fool although one may suspect that his foolishness is simply to wake us up to our own and one day Nasruddin was sitting on the edge of the village square on market day with a large pile of red hot chilies in front of him and as his friend one of his friends came up to him he saw that Nasrin was eating the chili and his face was bright red his eyes and nose were streaming he was obviously in a lot of distress and discomfort and his friend said Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? I'm eating these chilies said Nasrin he picked up another one put it in his mouth and his whole body shuddered with the intense heat and obvious suffering that was involved in this. And his friend said, Mullah, I can see you're eating these chili. Why are you eating these chili? And Nazarudin looked up at him and smiled. He said, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. And the basic understanding that Dharma teachings point us to is that if we do that with our life, we're going to keep getting chilies that aren't sweet because it's not in the nature of chili, red hot chili, to be sweet. Just as it is not in the nature of the conditions of our life to somehow be the way we want them all the time. It just isn't like that. And so what that says to us is we have to look in another way. It's like there's always something, isn't there? There's always something that's not quite the way we want it. No matter what it is. And if we really see that, if we really understand that, now we want something to stay, we want something to go, we want something to be bigger or smaller, or whatever it might be. If we're always preoccupied, engaged in that struggle with the way things are, it's exhausting and it's, it's actually really unsatisfying. There's no peace, there's no ease, there's no sense of well-being in that. And what happens to us is that because we're reacting to what's going on, we react to our experiences in this, in this wish, in this hope, in this dream of eternal comfort and ease. We, we tend to play out a very strong and particular pattern, which is that we 
we want that which is pleasurable and enjoyable and we don't want that which is uncomfortable and difficult and understandably of course it seems to make sense but wanting the pleasant doesn't make it appear or stay and not wanting the unpleasant doesn't prevent it arising or make it go away and yet what it does is it creates for us a sense of struggle with our life and leads to a process of disconnecting we actually become disconnected from our life by the way we react to it reacting to pleasant enjoyable experiences by wanting them to continue trying to figure out how they arose and how we can make them be prolonged or arise again reacting to difficult or painful experiences by trying to figure out how they arose so that we can stop them continuing or stop them arising in the future and in that thinking about thinking about the past, the history of our experience and its future we lose contact with where we actually are so we're asked in practice to cultivate a willingness of heart to actually be with what is to actually open to the way things are and to trust our experience as it is our life as it is revealed as it is offered to us moment by moment by moment we are asked again and again to let go to release ourselves from the pull of the mind that would take us in so many different directions so many journeys even in just one sitting it seems we can travel so far so fast and yet we also always have the opportunity and the possibility to come back, to return to reconnect when we experience difficult conditions can we let them be and see is it possible to be present nonetheless the power of the mind is always wanting always seeking for something other than what is now this is the the primary condition when unaddressed the primary condition that leads to dissatisfaction to suffering, to unhappiness and to the sense of a, a lack or a loss of peace and well-being to actually understand the nature of this process that takes us away from the from the natural well-being of life, the natural ease of life this is what practice invites us to do, to explore and we we kind of I think need to have a certain humility in how we go about this practice if we think that we can just kind of come along to a meditation retreat and get the instructions and do a few days of practice and then it's all going to be kind of finished we might be kind of a victim of our quick fix mentality this culture that and our way of thinking that kind of wants it all right now one of the a story of a um, I heard from a friend and a teacher of mine Joseph Goldstein I think it gave for me a good perspective on this he, he was at a, Joseph was at a, a conference with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and he related the story that the Dalai Lama told about um, visiting a monastery in, in America and this monastery was self-sufficient that, um, through their own um, sort of craft they, and in fact uh, particular producing uh, cheese and cake they, uh, they kept themselves uh, financially afloat and the cheese was very sort of high quality exquisite fancy cheese that was sold internationally and uh, sort of much acclaimed and the cake was kind of rather ordinary fruit cake that got sold in the local village market and the story that uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama told was that he was being shown around the um, shown around the monastery and at every occasion that they could they'd give him a piece of this exquisite refined and very special cheese and he said you know for that whole day they were offering me pieces of cheese I just wanted a piece of cake and to hear a story like that I, I find it actually quite uplifting because it's actually saying something about the condition of the human mind and 
Now the Dalai Lama was, he'd been practicing quite a few years, done quite a lot of work, a lot of inner work, and actually to be able to see that that tendency of mind is still there, and yet the one can actually take it quite lightly and not so personally, to see the momentum of mind, of wanting. Not as something about you or about me, but just something about the nature of mind. It's like until we actually discover that dimension of life that is truly satisfying, that dimension of life which actually releases us from the sense of something missing or something lacking, until we discover that, and when we're not in contact with that, naturally our mind is seeking for something. And what we're asked to do is to understand that, to understand that process. To not be hard on ourselves because of the process. So much of the time we're pulled and pushed by fear and desire. Pulled into the past, pushed into the future. Looking for the answers to our life that can't be found there. And we can actually begin to have some compassion for our life. To actually care for our life genuinely and deeply is to seek to live more fully where we are and to understand what it means to be here. To understand the depth and the dimension of what it means to be conscious and alive. To be awake. In the very midst of all of that that we call our life. Understanding that things change. And because they change, just as our breath comes and goes, just as the sitting changes to walking, just as we have one experience and then another. And we see how quickly it changes, how our mind moves from this to that, how thoughts and feelings and occasionally the breath almost miraculously appears. We come back to consciousness. Things change. But in this, we can't really make our home in any particular thing. But we can learn to make our home in the quality of attention that we give to our experiences, in the way that we meet what is going on. This is actually what most profoundly and fundamentally determines the quality of our life and our experience right now and in any moment. The quality of the connection that we make with our life is the quality of our life. And it's founded on three basic elements that we're cultivating through our meditation. And the first element is that quality of, of focus, of collectedness, of coming back again and again. We could call it concentration. As long as we understand that word correctly, concentration isn't like tomato concentrate where you squeeze all the moisture out of it and it turns kind of stodgy and thick. Sometimes concentration leads us to try, the idea of concentration leads us to try a little bit too hard. We think, I've got to get concentrated. My concentration is not very good. And there's uh, one of, uh, another, another friend and teacher in America, Rodney Smith, once said, he said, well, the, sort of the, the habit of the Western psyche to try really hard, to have low self-esteem, and put that together with uh, meditation instruction, sometimes what you get is concentration camp. <laughs> Now we can kind of relate to that, how we're so trying to be concentrated, trying to be focused, and constantly we can feel that we're not quite measuring up, we're not quite getting there, we're not making it. But actually, it's not just about that ability to focus and sustain the attention, but about the capacity we have to keep coming back. And the more we come back, the more deeply we actually are able to connect with where we are simplifying our experience, gathering our attention in, that gathering, collecting and focusing of our being is the first basis of the attention that we're cultivating. Together with that, we're cultivating a quality of openness, of receptivity, of actually allowing things to be as they are. Of not struggling with the fact that the mind wanders off. To see how quickly judgment and criticism arises in our minds how we feel we've failed, or we're hopeless, or we're no good. It's actually tragic how hard we can be on ourselves. When it's obvious and evident that we can't do any more than we're doing. 
we make the intention to be present we do what we can and after that we have to let go and we see the mind is drawn off but we also see that at some point we realize what's happening and in that moment rather than judging or condemning or criticizing or comparing ourselves with others we can actually be grateful we can actually even take joy in the fact that the mind has returned we're conscious again and it's not as if we did that because we weren't there the moment before by definition we were unconscious didn't even know we were unconscious and actually it's not a problem when we don't know it it's only when we become conscious again and think I shouldn't have or I know I've blown it again then we make a problem out of it but we don't have to simply reconnect begin again and equally noticing those moments when what arises is not easy for us what it's like when it's uncomfortable in our body no one wishes for this no one wishes this for you and yet it happens sometimes just like in our lives sometimes there's discomfort or pain sometimes our hearts are not at ease there may be sorrow or loneliness or fear actually just making space for what arises or the franticness sometimes the mind is restless and busy and all over the place it seems it can be really uncomfortable just to have to, to meet that experience but can we do that? can we let it be? and yet as wholeheartedly as we're able stay present reconnect, come back this, this quality of allowing of receptivity of kindness actually is a kindness and just allowing things to be as they are allowing yourself to be as you are what would we like how would we like to be met by people how would we like to be received we like to be seen as we are met without demands being placed on us to be different than we are isn't that what we would like isn't that what being met with kindness would mean for us well what would it be to meet our own experience in that way to meet each moment that we're able in that way to see it as it is to be willing to meet it to actually come up close not standing off at a safe distance observing but actually right there and yet not placing a demand upon it not saying it should be like this or it shouldn't be like that or it's okay but only for a little while actually oh meet it as it is this is actually the meeting of ourselves the meeting of our lives and there's a profound healing that can happen for us when we allow ourselves to be as we are and yet to meet our experience consciously and accepting, allowing open-heartedness actually enables us to come closer to our experience insofar as we can understand as much of the process of practice as healing our own separation from our life and from life itself through cultivating attention mindfulness focus collectedness we start to connect again moment by moment and yet we see in that connecting how hard it is for us to stay connected or to even be connected because some of that which we connect with is difficult it's not easy to bear and yet as we learn to open our heart to our experience to make space for it and we do this in the process of experiencing of coming back of beginning again we see that the, the distance we, we kind of sometimes are willing to be present but at a safe distance as we open as we cultivate this quality of receptivity of willingness of allowing we actually allow ourselves to come closer still to actually allow ourselves to truly feel our life to hold it, to embrace it even although we may feel this is still some way away from how we actually are in this moment or in most of our moments to actually begin to sense and trust that this is possible for us to actually enfold our life with kindness and with care another of my teachers, Ajahn Sachito is a, uh, a monk in the uh, 
Thai forest tradition, an Englishman in the, uh, one of the monasteries in England at Chithurst. And he uh, said when I was there not so long ago, I thought rather wonderfully, he said, dukkha or suffering is the condition we experience when our heart has not yet grown large enough to embrace our life. And there's a way in which the process of what we're doing here is inviting our heart to grow large enough to embrace our life. And in that embrace we come closer still. And there's a third element to the attention that we're learning to bring to our experience through the meditation practice. And that's the element of, of interest, of inquiry, of curiosity. That we're not just sitting here in order to get better at sitting here, although it's kind of useful to cultivate that capacity. We're not just sitting here to to be mindful of a succession, a stream, a string of experiences, of breaths and sounds and thoughts and feelings, although that's part of it. But we're actually here in order to understand our life. And the quality that allows us to come even closer to our life, to truly understand it, is that quality of interest. Rather than looking at our life as, what can I get out of it? What can it do for me? Or what is it going to do to me? rather than evaluating our experience on that basis, which is really a primarily or a, a materialistically oriented way of living, whether it be towards worldly things or the inner life, it's still much the same if we're looking at it from the point of view of what can I get out of this or what might this do to me. The same basic patterns of fear and desire that we can see in the world can be repeated in our life in our inner life. Just as a small child might come to something new, like a small, like a beetle or a leaf. Have you ever seen a small child just picking up something and just looking at it wide-eyed? So focused, so interested, not knowing what it is that it's looking at, and yet interested in it. This quality actually takes us, again, even closer to where we are, to our experience be connected and focused, to be open and receptive, to be interested and curious about what it is to be alive. These are the conditions which, as we cultivate them through our practice, actually support the deepening of understanding, the understanding of our life that actually is the basis of happiness and peace. Understanding that it is this relationship we form with our life that we can learn to form with no matter what is going on. To be conscious and connected, to be open and to be interested. That this is actually the basis of discovery. And the basis of actually revealing or recognizing, discovering that our life right here and now has all we need to wake up has all we need to be at peace and that when we actually release our mind from its habitual tendencies of dwelling in the past and the future from the enslavement to the movement of fear and desire the grasping and the craving, the resistance and the aversion, when we actually start to found our life more and more fully and clearly on the aspiration towards kindness and well-being, to serving the welfare of others and ourselves, as we actually begin to do that, we find quite naturally that the mind clears by itself. Not immediately, not always but that the natural radiance of mind, the natural radiance of life, begins to reveal itself. And this is not something we do, or something we own, or something we get, but something that is actually already here with us, and that yet is not always apparent because of the, the way of our mind, the habit of our mind, which we can actually learn to release ourselves from.
And so this is the process of, of practice. This is the process of unfolding our life. And it takes patience and it takes courage. It takes dedication and And all those qualities are there in your heart. All that you need. The Buddha once said, if it were not possible to do this, I would not ask you to do it. But it is possible to do this. And therefore I do ask you to do it. But the Buddha represents for us something I think very important. Not just the historical Buddha, but the the archetype of the Buddha, the capacity to wake up is what the Buddha represents as one who awoke. The capacity to wake up is really what practice is leading us towards, not just awakening in some kind of particular experience, but actually awakening the whole depth of our life, our heart, our mind, our being. And there's nowhere else it'll happen apart from where we are. There's nowhere else we need to be in order to discover this, apart from where we already are. And yet, learning what it means to allow ourselves to be here, to return and to more and more fully and wholeheartedly abide in the very midst of our life, with a conscious and open heart, this is a noble endeavour and one worthy of our practice and our life. So could we just sit quietly for a minute or two please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.